turned. Mark chapter 14 in your Bible today. Mark chapter number 14. Please turn there with me if you will. Mark 14 and I'll begin reading in verse number 3. Mark chapter 14 and verse number 3. And stand with me as we read God's word today, please. Mark chapter 14 and verse 3. And being in Bethany, which was really a suburb of Jerusalem, only about a mile or less from the city, being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat or at dinner, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence, 300 pennies, and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble you her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. Now, I don't typically preach a textual sermon, but today I will, and it's from verse 8. The text is those words, she hath done what she could. Will you say that with me aloud, everyone? She hath done what she could. She has come aforetime to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Now, if you go over to John chapter 12 in your Bible, and uh, we, I won't read the whole account there, but I want you to turn in your Bible to John 12. Keep your finger in John 12 as well as Mark chapter 14. It's the same story, and almost all the details are the same, but there's a couple of things that one account gives the other may not because the gospel writers wrote like that, didn't they? They wrote from their perspective. And everyone didn't say, uh, make the same observations. Okay, so just put your hand in John 12 and keep it there in Mark 14, and you may be seated. Thank you. And the message this morning is, she hath done what she could. Now, there's a slide they've been running here for several weeks called the Acts 2 Church. If y'all will put that up there for me again. Because I began preaching a series of messages here back almost a year ago, eight, nine months ago. And I took the account of the church in the book of Acts. And I preached on the various elements of it. First of all, they had a big vision. Their actual vision was to take the gospel to the whole world. And then it says to every creature. So their vision was tremendously big. It was to get the gospel to every person on the planet. That's still our mission today. That's still our dream and our vision. 
Secondly, I emphasize the place of prayer in an Acts 2 church. And in Acts 2 church, prayer is priority. It goes right to the top of the list all the time and every time God's people must pray continuously. And then I talked about witnessing boldly. Witnessing was an everyday event. Witnessing in an Acts 2 church is not a program that we schedule on Monday or Tuesday night. It's not a course that you take and you learn how to share your faith. Witnessing is telling people simply what the Lord has done for you and is telling them that in the normal course of the events of life. It's not just going out to visit church visitors or Sunday school absentees. Visit, uh, in, in the Acts 2 church, witnessing is a continuous activity of just in the normal course of life, talking to people about what the Lord Jesus is doing in our life. And then their mission was to make disciples. They were obsessed, focused on constantly on taking new converts and growing them and developing them and helping them to become true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it was to walk in the spirit as we've sung about in the, in the music this morning. Now, I want you to forget some of those momentarily. And I want us to focus on our mission, which is making disciples. And through this period of time, I've, just, I've studied a lot about making disciples. For example, what is the definition of a disciple? What is a disciple? And secondly, as a pastor, how do I lead a church to make disciples, to produce disciples, if you will? And here at the Baptist Temple, all those things about the Acts 2 church are goals and dreams of ours because our vision is to be an Acts 2 church, exactly as presented on the pages of Acts chapter 2. Now, in studying about discipleship, I have learned that there are four things that are essential to making disciples, four characteristics of a disciple. Maybe I should ask it as a question. Are you a disciple? You say, well, sure, I'm a Christian. No, every Christian is not a disciple. A disciple is a person who sincerely, genuinely follows the Lord Jesus Christ in their lifestyle. The question is, are you a disciple? You say, well, I'm not sure. What is a disciple? Well, number one, a disciple has a biblical worldview. A disciple thinks biblically. A worldview, and that's what I'll be talking about in weeks to come, is how we look at life and interpret life, the lens through which we view life, the glasses that we look at life through and interpret the events that occur in our lives, a worldview. Now, a disciple of Jesus Christ puts on his Bible glasses like you put on sunglasses and everything is tinted by the sunglasses, a disciple puts on his or her biblical glasses and everything is tinted biblically. And so we interpret the world through the Bible. So we must be taught the scriptures in order to do that. And thus next week I began reality, making sense of a crazy world, putting on our biblical 
spectacles, if you will, and looking at the world and interpreting the world through a biblical lens. Second thing about a disciple is disciples live a transformed life. A disciple has a new lifestyle, the lifestyle taught in the Bible. The Bible refers to us as if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He takes on the characteristics of the life of Jesus Christ in his life or her life. Thirdly, a disciple is a witness. They're not ashamed of the gospel. They're not ashamed to share with people. In fact, they don't just wait on opportunities. They seek to make opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. They turn conversations to spiritual conversations. And fourthly, and what I want to talk to you about today is disciples serve. Disciples serve their Lord Jesus Christ. They're not passive spectators to the Christian life. They don't just come to church and sit and say, I've done my duty. I can go home now. They serve the Lord Jesus Christ with their life, their time, their talents, their money, and so on. And I've discovered something else in my studies of discipleship as I've been thinking about this Acts 2 church. And that is that the best way to make disciples is to get people to serve. That people think when they come to a church, oh, I want to, I guess they're going to put out a plea for people to serve. And so they want me to teach a Sunday school class or sing in the choir. They want me to do something like that. Yes, you got it. You're right. We do. On the other hand, there's something far greater at stake than you beginning to be more active in the church. And that is, I don't know that you can build disciples and make disciples without people being involved in service through their local church. I really question if it's even a possibility. Now, the motivation for service is not then that you help the church. The motivation, I repeat, is not that you help the church. The motivation for me serving the Lord is love and gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ captures my heart and I love him and appreciate him like I should, service is just sort of a byproduct of that, isn't it? Someone wrote a long time ago, I will not work my soul to save. That work my Lord has done but I will work like any slave for love of God's dear son. The motive in serving the Lord, the motive in any Christian service is love and gratitude for Christ. Now, coming up back here in March the 19th, when you walk in here on that Sunday, you're not going to recognize the foyer, the church. We're going to take all the furniture out. Everything's going to go out. And we're going to put tables down the wall. And the tables will be representative of each of the various ministries of the church. Sports ministry and television ministry and technology and music ministry and and, uh, hospitality ministry and ushering and all the different things that we have to do here every week to make our church function well and to carry out our mission, the Great Commission. And we're going to give you the opportunity before and after the services just to visit those booths over the next month. We're going to keep them up for about a month. And we're going to let you go and talk to the people who are involved 
in service there. And we hope that we're going to be able to get a whole lot of new people to begin to serve because we're trying to gear up our church to take a leap forward. I hope it'll be a big leap and not just a step. I hope that we'll be able to see many, many people begin to put their shoulder to the wheel with us. And uh, my goal is to increase the number of people serving in our church, not just attending the church. And the significance, again, of service is what it does for you, how you grow when you become involved in doing the Lord's work. Now, go to Mark chapter 14, my message. I did the application first today, if you noticed. Now let's go to the text, and let me show you some things here, the text and the context. The setting for this story is in Bethlehem, as I said, a little village right in proximity to Jerusalem. And it occurs in the home of a man named Simon the leper, verse 3 of Mark 14. We don't know anything about Simon the leper. He is not a leper now. He's obviously been cured of his leprosy or he wouldn't have been in his home. So I believe it infers that probably Jesus has healed Simon and now he's returned to his home. Well, on this day, there's a number of people present. The first and most prominent, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the accounts indicate that Jesus was, in fact, the special guest that day in Simon's house. But also there was Lazarus, the man that Jesus had raised from the dead over in the book of Mark chapter, or John chapter number nine. It gives the entire account of that. And you remember Lazarus had two sisters, Martha. And every time you see Martha in the Bible, she's always serving, isn't she? And she's serving right here. When you read the text, Martha is always, always serving. It says that over in the John account. And then there's Mary, her sister and Lazarus' sister. And then there are some or all of the disciples. We don't know if all the disciples are here. We know one of them is here. His name is Judas. His name is mentioned and not in a very, um, not in a very positive manner, of course. Now, the story involves this event, and it's a, it's a very, it's, it's a strange event in a way. Mary comes in. Jesus is sitting at the table with the other guests. Maybe they've already finished eating or whatever. Mary comes in, and we're not sure about Mary. We know what the Bible says about her. We're not sure. Some people think she's also Mary Magdalene, who had been a prostitute formally and had come to Christ. Other people say, no, you can't prove that scripturally. So I don't know. But here comes Mary in and I picture Jesus sitting at the table, laughing and talking and fellowshipping with Lazarus and some of the other disciples and some people from the community and, and uh, Simon, the host. And Mary comes in and gets, walks to his feet and she kneels down and she has a box of what the Bible refers to as spikenard. Actually, the original word was nard. And I understand it's a very, very expensive ointment and it's made from a very rare plant up in the Himalayan mountains. And it's very, very expensive. It was then and it even is today. And this is in some sort of an ointment or oil form. And she has it in this little vial or bottle or flask or something. 
and she breaks it. The Bible says in every account, she breaks that. And she pours that over his head and she pours it then upon his feet. And we don't know how big a container it was. Was it two ounces, three ounces or whatever? We do know this, that Judas looking on says it was worth 300 pence. That's what he criticized her for. Now, a pence is a penny. And in those days, the common wage of a laborer was one penny per day. You see that other places in the Bible. So if you had a gift that was worth 300 pence, it would be 300 working days. Take out the Sabbath. That's over a year's wages. That's 100% of your wages for a year. So this was a very, very extraordinarily expensive gift that she was given. And the Bible says she broke it and the fragrance of it filled the room. And then it says that she poured that over his feet and over his hair in John chapter 12 and verse 3. Well, immediately she was criticized by Judas and other people there, it implies. Now, the thing about the criticism is, it's always people who are not doing anything themselves that want to criticize, isn't it? And here's old Judas standing by. He's ready to wax very, very critical. Go to John chapter 12 with me in verse 3, and let's see what it says. She took the pound of ointment of spikenard very costly. And she anointed the feet of Jesus. And then it says she wiped them with her hair. I can't imagine that. Obviously, women in those days wore long hair, for the most part, very long hair. And she just turned her hair into a cloth. In an act of supreme humility and devotion, she then rubbed that ointment on his feet with the hairs of her head. It's a strange thing. You and I, we can't even comprehend that. I mean, I have no idea what that would be like to see someone do that. But this is what she did. And immediately the criticism broke out. You shouldn't have done that. You should have given that money to the poor. A year's wages, 300 pence. And you've just wasted it in this act that you've done here upon Jesus Christ. Well, immediately Jesus defends her. He says, leave her alone. You can see that, the very words there. Leave her alone. She hath done a good work upon me. And so Jesus defends her. And then in the book of John, it puts in the little phrase there. It tells us why Judas is so critical. Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. The Bible says he had the bag, meaning the bag in which they carried their money, and he was stealing. He was the thief. And so obviously, he would have loved to have had his hands on that 300 pence, that small fortune there that he could have spent a part of it at least upon himself. And then the text, as I said, go back to Mark chapter 14 and verse number 8. Underscore this in your Bible. She hath done what she could. Leave her alone. What she's done is a good work. She hath done what she could. And I want to give you some principles of 
Christian service of serving the Lord Jesus out of that text. She's done what she could. There are five of them, if you want to write them down. Number one, service is for Jesus personally. Service, Christian service, is for Jesus personally. You see, I'm sure that Mary had in her mind, and what was behind all of this demonstration here, breaking this box and pouring this expensive perfume and ointment over him, Mary remembered just a year or so before what had happened. And Lazarus had gotten sick. And Lazarus, her brother, had died. And you remember Martha, her sister, went running to find Jesus and said, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus went to where they were. And four days had passed, and he stood at the front of Lazarus' tomb. And he said, as he stood there, Mary said, I wish you would have come again. If you would have come, he wouldn't have died. But you can't do anything now. It's been four days. In fact, she said, Lord, he stinketh. Already there's a bad odor coming from a deteriorating body. How tragic. There's nothing you can do, Lord. And then Jesus spoke, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible says the tomb opened and out Lazarus came. One of the commentators says, it's good that he said Lazarus. If he hadn't said Lazarus, everybody in that graveyard would have come. Well, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth wrapped up in those grave clothes, stumbling out the door. And now that man sits here with Jesus eating dinner that evening. And Mary remembered all that. And she was so grateful. Oh, my brother that I love, my brother who is the support of our family. My brother is alive and my brother is well. What could I do for Jesus that somehow might repay him just a little for what he did for us and our family? Ah, I have been saving up. I've invested even in that spike nerd. And it's the most precious thing that I have. It's the most expensive thing that I own. I'm going to give it to him. And she took that bottle and she broke it and she poured it over the Lord Jesus Christ as an act of gratitude and love and respect and worship for him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the motive for serving the Lord. The motive for serving of the Lord is not that they need you at the church. It's to remember what he has done for you and for me. This was extravagant generosity that she demonstrated here. This was lavish love, going beyond what you would have normally thought. This was a sacrificial act of worship. And she gave the very best thing that she could, the most precious thing in this act of absolute pure devotion. Now, Jesus comments on it. The significance of it is this is right at the end of his life. In four days, he will go to the cross. And what does he say? Mary, you don't understand the significance of what you're doing because in four days, I'm going to die. And before 
or when Jews die, the families anoint their bodies. And the only people that are not anointed are criminals. And they just cut them down and throw them in the grave. And I don't have a family. And you're the only one who even has done anything for me here. Great will be your reward throughout all of time because you have anointed my body even though you don't know the significance of these next days. She hath done what she could and what she did, she did for him personally. When I stand as your pastor and ask you to serve the Lord, I'm not asking you to serve the church. I'm not asking you to serve me. I'm asking you to serve the Lord Jesus Christ through your church. Service is for him, not for anyone else. Number two, second principle I see here is that Jesus expects us to do what we can. Jesus expects me to do what I can. He didn't rebuke her for what she did. Oh, Mary, that's too much. You shouldn't have done that. No, no, he didn't say that. He, because he expects us to do what we can. Now, quickly let me add, he doesn't expect you to do more than you can do. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. I've had people say, oh, at the Baptist temple, y'all just expect too much. Oh, wait a minute. We don't expect any more than what anybody can do in a reasonable way. You see, throughout the Bible, you see people doing, I mean, people made some huge sacrifices. But the Lord doesn't expect you every day to even make a great sacrifice, perhaps. He just expects you to do what you can do. Gandhi, the great Indian leader, said this, I never expected more of people than anyone could do, but I did expect all they could do. And the Lord doesn't expect the same thing from all of us here. The Lord doesn't expect from you what he expects from Bill Monroe or the next person. You see, the the Lord understands people. The Lord is a God of grace. He understands that different people have different talents. There are not too many people can stand and sing a song like Chris just did a few minutes ago. God's given him a unique talent. And thank the Lord for that. He doesn't expect me or you to do that very same thing. The, The Lord understands we have different abilities. The Lord understands we have different gifts. We have different callings, but he does expect us to do what we can do. We're in different ages. If you're 80 years old and you're having some problems with your health, the Lord doesn't expect you to do what you did when you were 30 years old, but expect you to do what you can do. I don't want to let you completely off the hook. There's something you can do for the Lord. We have different responsibilities. I know a person right now who is caring not only for, he's the primary caregiver for his parents, but also for his wife's parents also. They got the problem on both sides. Well, I understand why that man is not as active in the church as he one time was or possibly he could be. He's got heavy responsibilities that he's doing. He's straining under those responsibilities in his life caring for those aging parents. We got people here to have two jobs or three jobs just to make it. Some of these dear single ladies, my, they're struggling in their life. And the Lord understands that. You can't give, 
you know, he understands the limits of what your time is with children, your hours. We have people that live far away. We have people sitting here today who drove from Myrtle Beach to come to church. People who drove from Bishopville to come to church. People who drove from uh, Bennettsville to come to church here. From all over this northeastern region of South Carolina. And obviously you take that into account. But the Lord expects me to do what I can. And whatever I do, he expects me to give it my best. In fact, old Bob Jones Sr. was right when he, used to sit, when he used to preach in chapel. I understand he did this every year to his students. He would call them boys and girls. And he said, boys and girls, I want you to know it's a sin to do less than your best. I want every employer ought to hang that over the door, the workroom. It's a sin to do less than your best huh, in life. Just the Lord wants us to do what we can, and he wants us to do our best. Number three, the third principle I see here is doing what we can requires sacrifice. Boy, sacrifice is a word you don't hear in <laughs> 2017. It's all about comfort. It's all about convenience. Sacrifice? Where'd you read that? Well, that's what the Lord wants from us. You see, Mary's action was so costly. A year's wages in a bottle of ointment that she pours over the Savior. She could have used that money to do a whole lot of things with, couldn't she? But she sacrificed. She gave up something that she could have greatly benefited from and enjoyed to be able to do this act of worship and act of service to the Lord Jesus Christ. As humans, and I know because I are one, as humans today, the tendency is always to seek to do things the easy way. To look for convenience and look for comfort and look for the easy way out. To serve God with our spare time and our pocket change. To give God the leftovers, to give God what's easy for us and doesn't cost us much. David in the second Samuel chapter 24, I think it is. David wants to go up and worship the Lord. In fact, the man of God, the prophet Gad, said to David, you need to go up and worship the Lord up near Jerusalem. And he got up there and Gad said, now you need to build an altar right here. And David said, well, it's not my land. I'll find out who owns this piece of property. And so he found out there was a man there. He owned the property. And David said, I want to buy your property. And the man said, oh, no, king. He bowed down before the king out of reverence and respect to him. Oh, no, king. I don't want you to buy the land. I'll give you this. This is my threshing floor. This is a piece of land I've used on my farm. I'll just give it to you and all the animals you need for your sacrifice as well. And David said these words. Listen to David. No, I won't accept your gift, sir. Because I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I will not go up here and make the altar and let you provide the animals for the sacrifices and the land and the, and, and the altar. 
I expect it to cost me something. I'm here to make a sacrifice to the Lord. I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. One of the great sins, I'm afraid, of American Christianity today is we want to offer to God that which costs us nothing or costs us very little. And we're so blessed in America. We have 6% of the world's population and we have, what, 70, 80% of the world's wealth and possessions. And we have time and we have health. We have all these things that God has given to us. And we go back through Christian history and we see people, they really wanted to sacrifice. The sacrifice to them was not painful. They felt it was the only way that they could express their deep love and devotion to the Savior. And so Mary sacrificed a year's wages in one act to bring pleasure to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth principle is if I do what I can, it will be a blessing to others. If I do what I can, if I serve the Lord in the way that he wants me to, it will bless others. Do you notice in verse 3 of John 12, it says, the fragrance of it filled the room. The fragrance of it filled the room. Everybody was blessed. It wasn't just Jesus that enjoyed that very, very expensive fragrance. Everybody in the house was blessed. So doing her best actually changed the entire atmosphere of the house that they were in that day. Everybody in the house knew and everybody else was blessed except Judas. In fact, in Mark chapter 14 and verse nine, look at it with me. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Jesus said, this is such a tremendous thing that she has done for me. People are going to talk about it forever, wherever the gospel's preached. That's why I'm talking about it this morning, isn't it? I'm talking about it because Jesus said, people are always going to be focused on this wonderful, wonderful act of love and devotion. And number five, if I do what I can, Jesus will bless it. If I do what I should as a Christian, if I serve the Lord in the way that he wants me to serve, Jesus will take it and he will bless it. There's an old song. We used to always sing it in missionary conferences and missionary events. Little as much if God is in it. Little as much if God is in it. You remember the little boy came one day and he had the five loaves and the fishes just a little lunch his mama had packed for him. And the crowd was hungry and there were 5,000 people there and the Lord was there. And Jesus, or Philip comes to Jesus and says, there's not enough food. We, we don't have enough money to feed this crowd. And the little boy must have heard him because he went to Philip and he said, well, I'll, get, I'll contribute my lunch. And somebody said, what are these? What is this little lunch among so many? <laughs> you came feed one man here with this lunch. But the little boy gave it to Jesus, and Jesus multiplied it. And they fed the entire crowd, and there was food left over. Because when I do my best, when I do what I can do, then the Bible 
teaches that Jesus will bless it. And doing your best will always earn Jesus' commendation. Now, let me give you those principles again here before I close. Listen to them. The principles of serving the Lord are in that text. She hath done what she could. And my question to you is, my dear Christian friend, are you doing what you could? Are you doing what you could? Number one, we serve the Lord because we want to do something for him personally. We're not serving the church primarily. We do it through the church, but service is for Jesus. Number two, Jesus expects me to do what I can do, not what I can't do, not something that's impossible for me, just what I can do. Thirdly, doing what I can always calls for personal sacrifice. Doing what I can do calls for sacrifice. Number four, if I do what I can, it will be a blessing to other people. And number five, if I do what I can, then Jesus will bless it every single time if I do what I can. And she hath done what she ought. So my challenge to you today is this. In your Christian life, are you doing what you can? Are you giving the Lord your best? Are you doing it for him and not for the applause or the approval of other people or just to be a part of the society that we're in? Are you doing what you can? And on March the 19th, as I said, we're going to just clean out that foyer and make an appeal to it here. Here's my goal as a pastor. Everybody do something. Everybody do something. Because when everybody does something in their church, they begin to feel a part of it. And they take ownership. It's my church. And they're, they pray for it more. And they, they, they sense a deeper fellowship when they serve. So I want you to do what you can do. And it may be once a year, the only thing you can do is help with the food drive at, at uh, Christmas time. But do what you can do. I know what we can all do. We can all give that track out this week. Is there anybody here who couldn't give out that track this week? I'll bet you everybody here can do that in some way or other. And if everybody begins to do what we can do, boy, we can dream big. We can be an axe to church when we all do our very best. Now our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.